I know a handful of you. Uh, I'm a good friend of Ben's. He was actually my small group leader when I was in Christian Challenge. Sorry, I should have left here. here. Okay. I'm like, I don't know how this works. <laughs> there we go. Is that good? Okay. <laughs> Sorry about that. So, yeah, I'm a good friend of Ben's, and uh, he asked me to come and speak, and I told him I'd be glad. So it's, I just want to say thanks for having me and being here to uh, preach this morning. Uh, when I was an undergrad at Wichita State, I was studying English Lit, and in class discussion, it would be common for my professor to say something like, you know, we'd be reading Moby Dick, and she would say, well, let's, let's put on our feminist glasses or our Marxist glasses. Let's give this a gender or a queer reading or a racial reading or something. And so basically what she meant by that was uh, let's put on these glasses and we interpret the story through these lenses. And that's called a worldview. And so a worldview is kind of like a pair of glasses that we put on. And so as we look out, we see the world, we interpret it, and we make sense of our lives through those lenses. And the thing about these worldviews is that we don't ever really change our glasses until they get fuzzy or they get smudgy. And so we take them off and we tweak them, or we, we might get new lenses altogether. And as Christians, we would understand that the Bible is the lens through which we see the world and we make sense of our lives. And so this morning, we're going to continue your trek through Matthew's gospel. And you've been focusing on that one word summary, fulfillment. So early in Matthew's gospel, especially the first few chapters, Matthew over and over again gives these examples of this fulfillment language. So he'll say things like, you know, this was done in order to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets, or this was done to fulfill what the Lord had spoken. And so Matthew, he's laying this on thick, and he wants to get the point across. And his point is that he's setting up our expectations to see everything in the life of Jesus is the fulfillment of God's activity with his people. So from the Old Testament all the way through to the New Testament is one continuous story. It's unified. It's a whole. And so God's history with his people is now coming to its climax in the life of Jesus. In 1523, Martin Luther, he published a German translation of the first five books of the Bible. And when he published it, he wrote a preface, and he was explaining the importance of reading the Old Testament. And here's what he said. He said, Here you will find the swaddling cloths and the manger in which Christ lies. I think that's a great illustration. He's saying, you know, the Old Testament is like this cradle, you know, cradling Jesus, and the scriptures are like these swaddling claws, and Jesus is wrapped up in the Psalms and the prophets and the law. Here's how Paul brings together this fulfillment idea. In Galatians 4, Paul says, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, so they might receive adoption as sons. So that is the fullness of time, Christ's coming to earth. Time had been waiting for that moment. That's the climax of history. So it's 
not 1776, newsflash, not 1492, not 1517, not 2019. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is the climax of history. So everything before it is leading up to it, and everything after it is understood in light of it in a fresh way. And so now in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is starting his ministry, and he's saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And his role in this, he's the Messiah. So that just meant he was the savior, the promised deliverer of his people. And not only his people, but all nations, all the peoples of the world. And so that word Messiah or Christ, it's not a a last name. It's a title. It's his royal title. It means he's the anointed one. He's the king. So he's inaugurating his kingdom. He's saying, my kingdom's here. It's available to each and every one of you. But the strange thing about his kingdom, the thing that kind of makes us scratch our heads is that in order for Jesus to fulfill his role as the Messiah, the deliverer, he has to go to the cross. He's going to be met with confrontation and rejection and crucifixion. So that's where Jesus is going, and he knows it. It's not, it doesn't sneak up on him. It's not a surprise to him. Uh, in John, Jesus talks about his own death. And he says, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. So this is the big arc of the story. That's where the story is taking us. And last week you read about Jesus' baptism, and you have this Trinitarian moment with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and God proclaims about Jesus. He says, this is my beloved son and with him I'm well pleased. And so Jesus is anointed. He's about to start his ministry. He's going to go to the cross. But before any of that starts, Satan wants to derail Jesus from his mission. So turn with me to Matthew 4, 1 through 11. says, then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Then he said, Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. But Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So this is known as the temptation of Jesus. And I just want to draw your attention to that first verse, because if we read it too quickly, I think we could think that the Spirit is the one doing the tempting And that's not the case at all. The devil is the one doing the tempting. He was led by the spirit 
into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And James makes it very clear. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But with that said, it is important that we recognize that the Spirit does lead Jesus into the wilderness in order that he would be tested by this encounter with the devil. And that's one of the first actions of the Spirit in Jesus' ministry, is that he would be tested. So Satan wants to derail Jesus from his mission, but you know the outcome is not uncertain. So it's not like God and Satan are equals, they're on equal footing, and we just don't know what's going to happen. Now, Jesus knew the end of the story. We know the end of the story. As Paul says in Romans, the God of peace will soon crush Satan. He'll be thrown into the lake of fire. So the end's not in question. And if that's true, then we should ask, why does God test him? You know, what's there to test if the end is not in question? And I think that this is a way for God to demonstrate the confidence that he has in Jesus, to demonstrate the faithfulness of his son. So at the baptism, God says, this is my son and with him I'm well pleased. And so because he's well pleased with Jesus, he's going to show you how he's faithful when he's put to the test. And so you could say point number one, I, I have three observations about this text. Point number one is that God has confidence in his son. And then the implication of that is that we would too. So Jesus is supremely faithful. Here's what Hebrews 4.15 says. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so God is demonstrating the purity and the faithfulness and the trustworthiness of Jesus' character. So there's not this impassable gap between God and then our ability to know him. You know, that's one of the reasons why Jesus came in human flesh, so that we could relate to him in this way, that we could understand him. Jesus was fully God and fully man, yet without sin. And you know, sometimes I hear people say things like, well, you don't really know what it's like to struggle with what I do. And that's wrong for two obvious reasons. The first is, well, Jesus does. And Jesus was tempted in every respect as we are. And I don't know if, you know, that means that Jesus experienced every temptation that it's possible for him to experience. But I do know that Jesus experienced the nature of temptation fully. And the nature of temptation is to distort God's reality. So Jesus experienced temptation. He knows the pull of that. And one theologian said the person who resists temptation knows the full force of it. And the second thing I'd say to that person is, you know, that attitude is actually selfish because it assumes that I can't possibly know what it's like to want something that God doesn't want me to want. I don't know what that's like. It it's, isolates you. It makes you think that you're a singularity. And if your struggle is so unique and so specific to your circumstances, I think that's a, it's an easy way out of dodging any form of accountability 
any form of criticism. So, you know, we're sinful people, so we're always looking for ways to rationalize sin, which is irrational. <laughs> um, but I, I've watched people do it. I've seen spouses leave their spouses. <laughs> you know, I've seen uh, people make foolish decisions saying, well, you don't know my circumstances. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. So you're not alone in the temptations you experience. And this is true in at least two ways. The first is you're not so special. So how's that for Sunday morning? (laughs) You're not the only one to struggle with what you do. But then positively, how much greater confidence do we have knowing that we're not alone in our temptation, that Jesus knows what it's like to experience that. And then that we can have confidence in him because of his faithfulness. So that's point number one, that the spirit leads Jesus to be tempted by the devil because God has confidence in the faithfulness of his son. Point number two is Jesus is deeply aware of his absolute dependence on God. And for us, I think that's the key to our success as we fight against temptation. Now, the setting here is important. It's in the wilderness. It's this dry, barren, uncultivated place. And Jesus is fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And fasting here, it doesn't prohibit drinking water, uh, but he certainly, he's had no food. And I think the text is actually kind of funny because it says after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. (laughs) Well, you bet. So, you know, what was the purpose of Jesus of fasting though? I'd say that the point of fasting was to focus his attention in prayer, disciplining himself. So he's, he's disciplining his body and his mind and his soul in this unified effort to prepare himself for his public ministry. So Jesus is getting ready. Uh, I'm, I'm in the Air National Guard. Once a month we do, uh, we call it drill, and it's readiness training. We're getting ready. So Jesus, he's fasting. He's getting himself ready. He's training himself to depend on God. And that's what we do in fasting. We allow our hunger pangs to remind us of our deeper soul hunger for God. So we fast to remind ourselves that God is the one supplying all of our needs, that he's sustaining us, that he's providing for us, that we're not slaves to the cravings and desires of our bodies. And so Satan knows this is going on. Matthew calls him the tempter. So Jesus is hungry, the tempter comes, and you could envision it like Jesus is exhausted, maybe he's laying down, And he sees these stones and it's almost like a hallucination where suddenly they start turning into loaves of bread. And Satan's telling him, you know, you could turn these stones into bread right now. And we know later in the gospel, this gospel, Jesus certainly has the power to do it. He'll feed the 5,000. He'll multiply loaves of bread. He'll do it again with the 4,000 multiplying the loaves and the fish. You know, the point of those miracles was to demonstrate that Jesus would have compassion on the crowd, that he would have mercy, that he would provide for their needs, 
that they would glorify him in return. But here in the wilderness, Jesus is by himself. He certainly has the power to turn these stones into bread, but that would be a way of him abusing and misusing his power for selfish reasons. And so that, that's Satan's tactic. He wants to manipulate Jesus to do that. And what do we know about Satan? He's a liar. He's a deceiver. Manipulation is the name of his game. And so he comes and he says, if you are the son of God, then do this. And Jesus responds by quoting Deuteronomy. And he says, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And that passage that Jesus quotes from is significant. Uh, but, but before I read that, I just want to say a few things. And it's that Matthew's readers, their ears would have perked up. They would have heard a couple things. They would have heard fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. They would have heard this is in the wilderness. And then Jesus directly quotes from Deuteronomy. And they would have remembered the story of Israel wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. So Jesus' direct quotation from the Old Testament is like a hyperlink. You click on it and it takes you, you know, somewhere else. It's, it's a direct quotation designed to draw our attention to where the original passage comes from. And as I said earlier, you know, the Old Testament and the New Testament is one story. So here's a little Old Testament recap for you to get to where we are. So God promises this man named Abraham that he would make him and his descendants a nation. He promised him this chunk of land. And years later, his descendants become enslaved in Egypt for 500 years. God raises up Moses to deliver the people, leads them out of slavery. They cross through the Red Sea. They go into the wilderness where God gives them the law at Mount Sinai. Uh, the people, they wander around in the wilderness for 40 years waiting to enter that promised land that was promised to Abraham. And then during that time, God's presence is represented by this pillar of cloud in the tabernacle, is this tent. And as long as the pillar of cloud is there, they camp. And then when the pillar lifts, the people follow it to the new location and they, make, they set up camp again. And so all along the way, God is teaching them to trust in him to follow him and he's providing for them food and he's giving them water and he's giving them this mysterious stuff called manna and quail and he's giving them just what they need for the day's journey. But then the people, they become ungrateful, they forget God, they forget his saving work and then they start saying, you know, we'd be better off back in the old way of doing things. We'd be better off in Egypt. And Moses disobeys God's instructions at one point, so him and that entire generation don't get to enter the promised land. And this man named Joshua, Moses is going to pass the baton of leadership to this guy named Joshua who will lead the people into the land. And so when we get to the book of Deuteronomy, it's a book of Moses' final speeches to the people before he passes the baton. And so my point of saying all of that is to say that when Matthew's readers would have heard the setting in the wilderness and the 40 days and uh, 40 nights of fasting and then Jesus' direct hyperlink quotation to Deuteronomy. They would have had that entire story running in the back of their mind. 
You know, for us, that'd be like somebody saying 1776, right? We hear that and we think, uh, you know, the 13 colonies and the Declaration of Independence and the Boston Tea Party and Yorktown and Washington crossing the Delaware and all that. So all of that's in the back of our mind just when we hear those four digits. We know the story. So that's what's going on in Matthew's gospel. So here's the passage in Deuteronomy 8. It says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So here's the point. It was true in, then in Deuteronomy. It's true now with Jesus. God is teaching them absolute dependence on himself. He's teaching them to trust in his provision. And Jesus knows this reality. He knows this so deeply that when his body and his mind is exhausted and he's being tempted to misuse his power, his mind is drenched with this story. He knows his dependence on God, that God's going to remain faithful to provide for his needs just as God was faithful to provide for the people in the wilderness. And so for us, as we think about temptation, temptation loses its power when we have contentment in Christ, when we know our absolute dependence on him, that all of our needs are met and satisfied in him. And not, not just physical stuff, though Jesus' physical needs are met here. I'm talking about our spiritual needs, the, the thirsts of our soul. The psalmist in Psalm 107 verse 9 says, He satisfies the longing soul. Think about that. The longing of my soul, God satisfies. The hungry soul, he fills with good things. And so, we sin, yes, because we're sinners, but we sin because we think our sin has positive outcomes. And so we seek after these things that are actually empty because we think it'll bring us happiness or we think it'll dull our pain. And so we do this with all kinds of things, sex, alcohol, relationships, gossip, eating. We do these things because we think it'll relieve stress, it'll make us feel wanted or desired. And the truth is that these things work, however insufficiently and temporarily. You know, but if we knew the truth that the pursuit of this stuff is just chaff in the wind, striving after nothing, then we could say, you know, wait a minute, I'm, I'm seeking this because I want to feel secure or whatever, but I have all that I need in Christ. I'm fully satisfied in him. I lack nothing. Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Really? That's a reality we can live in. I lack nothing. The Lord is providing for me. So Jesus was living in that reality. And we can too, but we have to train to get there. So we drench our minds in scripture. We let our mind be saturated by the stories of God. And then we train ourselves, we get ready by depending on him through 
prayer, through fasting, through reading scripture. So Jesus is deeply aware of his absolute dependence on God. Point number three is Jesus uses scripture to govern his perception of reality. So these are, scripture is Jesus' worldview glasses. It helps him see what's real, helps him see what's true. And so in every temptation, Jesus responds by quoting scripture. You know, earlier I said that the nature of temptation is to distort reality. Temptation is presenting us with this alternative vision for what a flourishing life looks like. And you might notice how similar this encounter with the devil is to Adam and Eve's in the garden. So the serpent in the garden comes to Eve and says, did God really say? And so from the beginning, Satan wants to distort, he wants to twist, he wants to undermine the reality of what God has spoken. And he's saying, you know, you're missing out on the good life. You could know good and evil, you could be like God. And where Adam and Eve failed, Jesus remains faithful. And Satan, he's really dumb. He comes with the same old strategy. And he says, uh, if you are the son of God, so he comes with the intention of distorting and misrepresenting the truth. Think like how similar that is. Did God really say? Now he comes to Jesus. If you are the son of God, Jesus allows scripture to remind him self of what's true. He's secure in his identity. It's like Satan's questioning his identity. He's saying, if you are the son of God, are you sure about this? Do you know who you are? And Satan wants to distort and to question that. And so I think for us, many of our temptations feed off of these insecurities we have about ourselves and about our identity. And when we're confident in who God has made us, what scripture says about us, we use that to remind us of what's real. And temptation loses its force. And the the second temptation is similar. This time, Satan distorts the Bible itself. So Satan quotes from Psalm 91, and he says, you know, we could climb up to this tower, throw yourself off of it. God will send his angels, and he'll rescue you. That's what the Bible says, right? And again, Jesus uses scripture to demonstrate that Satan is misusing scripture because manipulation is the name of his game. And Psalm 91 isn't promising that no trouble is ever going to come. Actually, what God promises in that psalm is, I will be with you in trouble. And the third temptation is Satan takes him up to this high mountain shows him all the kingdoms of the glory of the world and he tells him, look, I'll give you all of this if you but fall down and worship me. And what I think is going on there is Satan is presenting Jesus with a shortcut to glory. He's saying, bypass the cross. You can bypass the suffering, all this hardship, all this glory, all this power can be yours but you have to worship me. And Satan, or Jesus isn't having it. He responds again in Deuteronomy. He says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. And so again, just the main point here is that Satan distorts and manipulates the truth. 
And Jesus has a scripture glasses to govern his perception of what's real. And it's not even that Jesus has a point of view of reality like one among many other point of views. So it's not like Jesus's scripture glasses are equal to uh, the Marxist glasses or the feminist glasses. Right? It's scripture enables Jesus to see reality as it actually is, as it truly is. And sometimes the lure of sin can look so good. Right? It's so good. It's so beautiful. This feels so right. How could this possibly be wrong? But the bottom line is that if it's not in line with what God has spoken, then it's a distorted picture of what's true. It's a distorted, inaccurate picture of reality. And people waste their lives pursuing this stuff. Families unravel because people pursue the mud. Proverbs 5 says, The lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, but in the end she is bitter, sharp as a two-edged sword. That's the reality. So, I don't know, maybe you're believing lies from Satan about your identity, your self-worth, your value, your purpose. And Satan is presenting you with this distorted picture of reality. But my prayer for you is that you would pray and ask God to help you use scripture to govern your perception of what's true. To believe what's true about the world. And so we need scripture to tell us when we're desiring something that looks so good to say, no, that's actually death. Right? I want to listen to scripture there. We need his word to be the foundation that we build our lives on. You know, C.S. Lewis famously said that we're half-hearted creatures fooling about with sex and drink and ambition while infinite joy is available to us. And then he said, we're content to make mud pies in the slum because we can't imagine what a holiday at the sea is like. So scripture enables us to see mud as mud. And scripture enables us to see Christ as the supremely valuable treasure that he is. So I want to give you some time to respond now and just give you some thoughts uh, to pray through and just reiterate these points to guide your prayer. And the first is God is confidence in his son. Jesus is faithful. When we fail, and we will, we look to him and his faithfulness. And Jesus cultivated this absolute dependence on God. He was fully satisfied in him. God will provide us what we need. We can find contentment in him. And then lastly, let us use scripture to govern our perception of what's true about the world. So let's pray. Wrestle with God about these things and talk to him about your life and ask him where you need to respond.